Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Lisa Halverson, Taylor's wife. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the Book of Ruth and 1 Samuel's chapters 1 through 3. And we're really ha happy to have you come back again, Lisa. I'm glad we didn't scare you off the first time. <laughs> and we're excited about today because these stories we're talking about deal with women who are faithful to God and are a model for all of us for how God is faithful to us when we're faithful to Him. So it's just great to have you with us today, Lisa. It is exciting to have Lisa join us, and, and they're going to take most of the time. I just wanted to say one little thing here at the beginning. As you launch into this story of Ruth and Naomi and later on Hannah, these are stories not of, of ease and comfort and of everything working out perfectly the way that they would have intended. These are women who, who show us a, a Christ-like example of how to move forward in the face of intense adversity and setback, and it's, it's just beautiful to get to celebrate the, the Christ-like attributes of these faithful disciples of Christ as we, as we cover this, these stories today. So as we begin and we think about these women, um, there are a couple of things that really struck me as I was reading these scriptures. First of all, the very powerful theme of love um, and of basically the two great commandments that um, these women display an intense, deep love of God and they display a love of neighbor, of others um, around them, so much so that they consecrate themselves to, uh, to God and to neighbor, to serving both. Um, Taylor has spoken in the past of the concept of hesed, and that word comes up multiple times in the verses that we'll read today. Um, and that is, it's a Hebrew word, which has to do with God's loving kindness. What do you want to say about that term, Taylor? So this word hesed shows up significantly throughout the Old Testament. As Lisa said, it does mean loving kindness, or this word love we all think we know what the word means, and I think we all do understand it well. This word also has a covenantal context in Scripture. So often when love is referred to, it's about the love of covenantal connection, people to one another, as well as God loving us, connected to us, and us loving God, where we're connected to Him. We have a covenantal religion. And that's what these stories are about. In fact, the name Ruth itself, and we'll share more about this, means friend or friendship. So her name is the meaning of the book. In fact, her name, friend, has to deal with what she represents, hesed. She represents real friendship is loving kindness. So when we think about being a real friend, it's about that loving kindness. God is a friend to us. In fact, we have scriptures about Abraham being called the friend of God, meaning he had received this loving kindness from God. 
That's what I see going on here in these scriptures. So as we look at the book of Ruth, we look for examples of how is Ruth a friend or showing loving kindness to others? How do people show friendship or loving kindness or hesed to her? And ultimately, it's about how does Jesus be the ultimate friend to all of us? How does he show this loving kindness, this covenantal love, where we are bound in this eternal friendship? That's what I love about this book, and she's such an amazing character. And as Tyler mentioned earlier, she does so in the face of extreme challenge. I think many of us would love to have easy lives, to easily choose these things. These things are actually chosen in the face of challenge and adversity. We're like Abraham, tested to see if we also will respond with hesed and be like God, who is the source of all hesed and loving kindness. So I want to begin with a poem, and I, you have to fault this um, on my past as an English, high school English teacher, but John Donne wrote in the, he was kind of a contemporary of Shakespeare, born about eight years after Shakespeare, and he gave a sermon on Christmas Eve day in St. Paul's Cathedral, and these are part of those words, and I will refer to, I want to read the whole thing now, a little lengthy, but then I want to refer to snippets of it as we're talking. We ask our daily bread, and God never says, you should have come yesterday. He never says, you must again tomorrow. But today, if you will hear his voice, today he will hear you. If some king of the earth have so large an extent of dominion in north and south as that he hath winter and summer together in all his dominions, so large an extent east and west as that he hath day and night together in his dominions, much more hath God mercy and judgment together. He brought light out of darkness, not out of a lesser light. He can bring thy summer out of winter. Though thou have no spring, though in the ways of fortune or understanding or conscience thou have been benighted till now, wintered and frozen, clouded and eclipsed, damped and benumbed, smothered and stupefied till now, now God comes to thee. Not as in the dawning of the day, not as in the bud, as in the bud of the spring, but as the sun at noon. To illustrate all shadows as the sheaves in harvest, to fill all penuries, all occasions invite his mercies, and all times are his seasons. So, you know, both in the Ruth and Naomi story, um, and in the Hannah story, we have some examples of extreme joy and sorrow. We have those winters and those summers. Um, we have life and death. We have infertility. God is large enough to contain our ups and our downs, our moments of light and of darkness. Um, all occasions invite his mercies. All times are his seasons. And I think we'll see this as we look in the scriptures. So let's talk about the book of Ruth. We've got here a story of migration, of moving. You've got what appears to be a young couple, Elimelech and Naomi. They live in Bethlehem, but there's a famine in the land. Um, most people don't want to leave their home, but if your children are starving, or you are, you will, you will move. You will go in search of food for them. And so they move to Moab. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between the Moabites and the Israelites at this time? So the Moabites historically were one of the enemies of Israel. So if you consider this, here are these Israelites choosing to move into enemy territory, at least according to how some of the narratives play out in the Bible, that the Moabites are considered the enemy. So does this seem like a safe thing to do? You're in a famine, so let's go move to the enemy territory. So if you are an Israelite, this is um, not the place, this is not your first choice, but, but if you're starving, you go. You, you move, you migrate, as these two do. We, we might also say, you might consider the Moabites to be like the New Testament Samaritans. As you know, in the New Testament, the Jews did not think highly of the Samaritans, didn't like them, and this is a similar view of how the ancient Israelites thought of the Moabites. You wouldn't find Jews moving in the time of Jesus into the Samaritan territory. Similarly, we have this kind of this interesting part of the story that catches our interest, and any in ancient Israelite listener to this would say, wow, this story is catching my attention because I would not expect an Israelite to move in with the Moabites. But just as Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, here we seem to have a story of acceptance. This young couple moves in, they have two sons, they seem to be welcomed no longer as stranger but as fellow citizen. In fact, um, eventually their, their sons will marry Moabite women, and so it seems that they are accepted. Um, let me just say something. From the Old Testament, it's as if the Moabites are living Old Testament law, a religious scholar said welcoming the stranger or the foreigner or the immigrant is the most oft-repeated commandment in the Hebrew Scriptures, with the exception of the imperative to worship only one God. So when Jesus Christ gives us the two great commandments, it's not like he's just pulling these out of nowhere. He is going back to the law he gave in the Old Testament. Love God from Deuteronomy, well, from all over the scriptures, but one of the most famous places for that is what's, what's referred to as the Shema, the Shema Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. The Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. So the first great commandment comes straight from the Old Testament. And then the second great commandment also comes from the Old Testament. If we turn to Leviticus 19, again, all over the Old Testament, but Leviticus 19, 18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So these two great commandments are given there, and then when Christ is asked to explain who our neighbor is, he, of course, tells the story of this foreigner, this outsider who is the neighbor. So really, he's saying, love thy neighbor and those that don't even seem like you, that, that um, may have been cast down or rejected from your society, love them as well. Let's build on this just briefly, that you have these contrast going on. You have the Israelite, you have the foreigner, you have uh, moving into a foreign land, you have this immigration status going on. It really symbolizes, if we look at the book of Ruth, 
right, wanting to be in friendship or loving covenantal hesed with God, that God invites us to immigrate into his home territory. And he loves us as his neighbor. He invites us in. And in some ways, God, who's not totally like us, we invite him to immigrate or to come into our homes and our lives. So we have these interesting stories about where we see what happens when people trust one another and love one another and treat each other as friends, the joy and the beauty that can happen even in the face of adversity. And I see the symbol that God himself is symbolizing that he is the real neighbor and he models for all of us how to love everybody, even those who may not be like us. And he invites us to be like him because as we act to understand and love those who may not be like us and to be friends with them and to be in these covenantal, these loving covenantal relationships, that process purifies us to become like God. And that's one of the themes that we can see here in the book of Ruth and even in the Good Samaritan story that Jesus picks up later in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, Christ even says, you know, I'm asking you to migrate into my territory. It's not scary. I was a stranger. I was a refugee. I was fleeing war and persecution. And you took me in. You dressed me. You clothed me. You accepted me. Um, And because you have done that, come and inherit my kingdom. By the way, that's just really fascinating that, again, if we play on this theme, that God is saying, you technically don't belong here, but I'm asking you to come into my territory as an immigrant or as a stranger or as a foreigner, and I'm going to give you everything if you live my laws. It's quite stunning if we consider it from that perspective. That's really what God is saying in these scriptures. He's trying to catch our attention that everything that he has, we can have too. He wants to give it to us if we enter into this Hesed loving kindness, friendship, covenantal relationship. So Elimelech and Naomi move, they build a a good life, um, they develop friendships. The language isn't that different from Hebrew, but they may speak it with an accent, you know, they're there, but they are making a new life for themselves in Moab. Then tragedy hits and Elimelech dies. Um, The, let's see, the sons marry, Moabite women, but they don't end up having children, and then they die as well. Um, And so, suddenly, it's been maybe 10, 15, possibly even 20 years that they've been in Moab, and now there's a famine in Moab. So, you know, Naomi's really been hit, um, and Ruth, too, as her daughter-in-law, multiple times. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's in a place where now she once again can't find food, especially as a woman during this time when you are reliant upon your sons, your fathers, your husbands, and she has none of those. We we should just explain this briefly, that the economic situation of the ancient Middle East was men were the ones who owned property, and it was their duty and obligation to ensure that those people in their families were protected and provided for. And if the man died, it would mean that the entire family could be put in jeopardy. That's why you hear the phrase, take care of the widow and the orphan. Now, obviously in any circumstance, that's gonna be tough for a widow and an orphan, 
But if you imagine the ancient, ancient context, the ancient economic context, widows and orphans often did not have any legal right to the property unless it was through another man. So the way the story of Ruth is described for us is there couldn't be any worse circumstance. You now have women who aren't part of the economic system as it was designed, that they no longer have any way of surviving, and there's a famine. And so there's this extreme circumstance that they have to figure out. And again, what do you do in extreme circumstances? Do we turn to hate and anger and fear and pushing ignorance, whatever it might be? Or do we double down on friendships and covenantal loyalty to God and to others? That's how the story plays out. So again, this is very stark circumstances and the relief or the contrast or the context makes Ruth's friendship and her covenantal loyalty all the more amazing. And I just love the story. So Naomi has a decision to make. And um, during a time of economic duress, even though she's been welcomed into the Moabite land, I do wonder what sometimes, you know, we might turn against those that seem to be newcomers in such a time, um, even though she's not that new. For whatever reason, she decides, I'm going to return to Bethlehem. I'm going to rely upon the Hesed of my relatives there. And she doesn't think that her daughters-in-law should come with her. If they're going to remarry, they're much more likely to remarry a Moabite man. So let's read from the scriptures what Naomi says of herself in this difficult time in her life. If you look at Ruth 1, verses 20 and 21, and she said unto them, call me not Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? That term afflicted me can even be translated into broken me down. Is there... She hurts. Naomi is really hurting at this time. Feeling so broken, Naomi tells her daughters-in-law to stay. And her words are actually a chiastic pattern. So look with me at Ruth 1, verses 8 and 9. Go, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So that kind of goes, it's, it's an ABC pattern, talking about the, the house of your mother or the house of your husband. You've dealt kindly with me. Um, there's where we see the word hesed. And may the Lord deal um, like in a like manner with you. So that's her wish. And um, it's actually a pretty reasonable request for her daughters-in-law to, to take. She kisses them, another chiasm in verses 9 and 14, if you take them together. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voice and wept. Down to 14, they lifted up their voice and wept again. 
And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law. But then the chiasm is broken because it says, but Ruth clave unto her. You start to get a little sense of what Ruth is like, like here. Orpah's choosing the sane, reasonable route, the safe one. Ruth's a little headstrong, though, and she's not going to listen to her mother-in-law in this. But she has these beautiful and famous words. So she cleaves unto her mother-in-law, and she says this, <clears throat> verse 16 in chapter 1, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. This is stunning. It's so clearly this friendship, this kindness, this hesed, this love, this is the essence of what God offers all of us. Ruth demonstrates this is how Jesus feels about all of us. He is completely loyal to us. He invites us to be loyal to him in return. I just really honor Ruth. And in her moment of extremity, she demonstrates what it means to be like God and committed to what is beautiful, true, and good, to be completely loyal to these relationships. What a great, great hero. In doing so, she renounces her biological ties, and she goes with Naomi. And uh, one religious scholar described her choice like this. In the entire epic of Israel, only Abraham matches this radicality, but then he had a call from God. If you think of Genesis 12. Divine promise motivated and sustained his leap of faith, the Abrahamic promise. Besides, Abraham was a man with a wife and other possessions to accompany him. Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. She knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection, even of death. Consequently, not even Abraham's leap of faith surpasses this decision of Ruth. But we have read why. Why is she willing to make this radical, dangerous decision? Because of her conversion, her complete conversion to the God of Israel. Um, and so she's stating her loyalty and her friendship not only to Naomi, but to God himself. Um, so core things about Ruth. She loves God with her, all her heart, might, mind, and, and soul. She seems willing to trust in Hesed, both hoping for the Hesed of the people of Bethlehem um, and the Hesed of God. So remember from that poem that I read at the beginning, today if you will hear his voice, today he will hear you. And so she puts her trust in God that he will hear her, her prayers, the prayers of Naomi. Though Again, from the poem, in the ways of fortune or understanding or conscious, thou hath been benighted till now, wintered and frozen, widowed and childless, I might add, clouded and eclipsed, damped and benumbed, smothered and stupefied till now. Now comes God to thee, not as the dawning of the day, not as the bud in the spring, but as the sun at noon. That's the promise, but she's not there yet. So they return to Moab. Um, I, what I love about this quote you have from John Donne 
He gave it, as you mentioned, on Christmas Eve day in 1624, one of the darkest days of the year. And here he's preaching this sermon of light, symbolizing God's love. So considering Ruth's circumstances, she's in the darkest situation you might imagine being in in the ancient world, and she chooses to see the full noonday light of God's covenantal faithfulness and love, and she chooses God. That's why she's so willing to move forward with faith. When you have that certainty of God's shining love at noonday, faith compels you forward to do what is right. It's just, it's, the path is very clear. So again, I love that contrast between dark and light that we see here in the text. Well, Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem and they get there in time for the barley harvest. This is one of the earliest harvests of this, of, you know, the year, of the season, often harvested around March or April. Um, and right away, verse 2 in chapter 2, Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. Well, Naomi knows her scriptures um, because repeatedly in the Old Testament, and I found one scripture with it, but then I found another scripture with it, and then I saw another scripture with this commandment. The Israelites have been told this. Interestingly, it comes back from that chapter, one of the places I found it, is back in that chapter where we saw the second great commandment. So let's go back, back to Leviticus 19. In verse 18, we heard, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if we go back just a few verses, we read this, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt, thou glean, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. Okay, remember that means the immigrant. I am the Lord thy God. So Ruth knows that this is the commandment in the land, and she, she figures she can take advantage of it. Um, this ancient commandment, still stands today. It is the commandment for Hesed, right? For trying to be generous with our time, our talents, our testimony, um, to serve others, to offer them the grace that God offers us. Isn't that an amazing insight that that God is so concerned about caring for the poor, the needy, the fatherless, the widows, those who, who maybe don't own land or can't can't produce the, the food necessary to sustain life, that if you, if you are a farmer, a landowner, that law from Leviticus 19 and from, as Lisa said, many other places in the Old Testament makes it very clear that you leave the corners and the edges of your field for those poor and needy. And one step further, if your harvesters, your gleaners, the people who work for you, if they pick up grain from this part of the field, and if any of the grain falls to the ground, under the law of Moses, you have to leave that as well. I think it's amazing if you step back from this Old Testament context and put it now in our world, because most of you today don't, don't own property, and even if you did and you were farming it, you, you don't leave the border of your fields for, poor, for the poor and the needy to come and harvest. Um, 
but we all are invited to do that symbolically through our, our offerings of through, through the fast and through our tithes, where we leave portions of our goods to, to be distributed to the poor. Uh, an insight that I gained many, many years ago from, from a good friend and colleague, Wayne Dimmock, on this idea of caring for the poor and needy is that there's something beautifully symbolic about the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ here. Why? Because you get those who are rich and those who are poor, and at the fast offering opportunity, or here, what you have is an invitation for the rich to become just a little bit poorer so that the poor can become a little bit richer. It's just a small symbol of Christ who was the ultimate of he who has all things, who he didn't just give up a little bit, he descended below all so that he could exalt us who are very poor and make us rich. So next time you, you have a fast Sunday and next time you ponder, hmm, should I, should I pay any fast offerings here? I would, we would just invite you to consider this is yet another way for us to try to become a little bit more like the Savior in, in becoming a little poorer so that the poor can become a little richer. I, I think it's a beautiful tie-in to this whole story with Boaz and Ruth as we move forward. Tyler, thank you for that really great insight. Remember that what Tyler talked about is another example of hesed, loving kindness, friendship. Remember, Ruth's name means friendship, the kind of friendship that is demonstrated in hesed. So when we have an opportunity to share our time and our talents and our resources, in helping other people, we are expressing Ruth or friendship or hesed or covenantal loyalty to God. So Ruth, a hard worker, goes out to the field and gleans as the law allows her to do. Um, and at the end of the day, she speaks with Boaz um, and asks him, why have I found grace in thy sight? This is verse, um, verse chapter 2, verse 10. And he says, because I know that you have shown hesed to your mother-in-law. And so because of her graciousness, he's gracious um, back to her. He encourages her to keep working in his field. He allows her to drink the water that's brought out for his workers. He tells his male workers, leave her alone. He allows her to glean even among the sheaves. So the phrase, even among the sheaves, makes it seem like this is a big deal. So back to Tyler's border, right? It's pretty easy to, to work around the borders to get what you want. So going inside the field, there's actually more food you could get from the sheaves that may have fallen down. So even among the sheaves, meaning you can make your way into the field and see what's still available there. In verse 12, Boaz blesses Ruth and said, The Lord recompense, recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Wow, that is a great verse. You get the, the idea of wings, and you get this in uh, Third Nephi, where Jesus says after the destruction of the Nephites, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathered her chicks under her wings. So you have this, this phrase of protection and trust Again, it's all about representing chesed, loving kindness, covenantal relationship. Again, 
We are with a God who is a covenantal God. Our religion is a, a religion of covenants. Our theology is a theology of covenantal relationship. That's what's being expressed here. So when Ruth returns home, Naomi says, how did it go? Were you able to glean? Um, and Ruth's been very successful. And she explains the situation. And Naomi, who previously had spoken of her bitterness and how she felt that God was breaking her down, now in Ruth 2, verse 20 says, Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. Um, she's rejoicing now in God's goodness. Ruth has been able to kind of rejuvenate her testimony and lift her up. I know that's happened in my life when I felt so discouraged with something, and my testimony has been rejuvenated by the support of others who've been showing me that loving kindness and that hesed. So the way the story plays out, Naomi, making use of the cultural expectations of the day, realizes that Ruth could become married to, to Boaz. And in that process, Ruth demonstrates her willingness to be married. She lays at the feet of Boaz, and we see in the scriptures that he covers her, and it's a representation that he has accepted her, that she has now come under his protection, under his grace, under his kindness. So you have these symbols going on of how people are brought into this covenantal relationship. So in this context, in the ancient Israelite world, there was something called the Leverite Law of Marriage. If a man has died and has not produced offspring, a relative can marry the woman and together they can produce an offspring who will then protect the land and the property and the name of the man who is passed on. So Ruth seems to understand this as well. Now remember, she's a Moabite, and she is willing to enter into this Israelite covenantal context. Here's, here's the symbolic gestures that go on with Boaz accepting of Ruth in marriage, and of Ruth actually proposing marriage to Boaz. So verse 9, and he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thy handmaid. Spread, for, spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. So again, the symbolism of I'm now coming under your wing of your protection. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord my daughter, for thou hast shewed more kindness, hesed, loving, loving kindness, in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, neither poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. She has demonstrated the trust that comes from loving kindness, Hesed. Remember, her name means friend. So here she is symbolizing and Boaz is acknowledging this is what real friendship is. You have showed real friendship to everybody, and therefore we will show friendship to you, and I will bring you under my protection. So Boaz and Ruth are married. And I want to look at Ruth chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. I'm going to start with 16. Um, they marry, they have a son, they name him Obed, and Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became, became nurse unto it. Now, this is interesting because Naomi's older, um, you know, she hasn't gone through pregnancy and delivery, so her 
her um, hormones aren't producing, you know, encouraging her to lactate. Why would she become nursemaid? I originally thought it meant that the woman who breastfed Obed. But if you look closely at the Hebrew, there's some interesting things. There's actually two words that get translated as nurse in the Old Testament. One, yanak, refers to a woman who does breastfeed a child. But the word that is used to describe Naomi is aman. And this word is related to our saying amen. And it comes from a Hebrew root, which has to do with belief. Um, both of these terms get used in the famous verse in Isaiah 49, 23. Kings shall be thy nursing fathers by Amon, and queens thy nursing mothers, Yanak. And so when we use Amon instead of someone who suckles a child, it is usually someone who nourishes and supports and upholds um, and who, you know, allows, who helps another be nourished by the good word of God. So I think this is, well, we know based on the Hebrew that this is the nurse this is the role that grandmother Naomi plays with her grandson, Obed. Um, and so it, these two women kind of remind me of my own family history. My great-grandmother um, had two children, my great-aunt and my grandfather, and then her husband died when my grandfather was only a year old. And they lived in Omaha, Nebraska, surrounded by many family members, but decided at that point to move 1,500 miles to the west to Hermiston, Oregon, where her older sister, not sister's husband, um, had a farm and had just lost their own child. So I, I don't know all the reasons why, but my great-grandmother felt that that would be where she could have someone there to support her. My great-grandmother was a little colorful, her language, she wore pants, she smoked cigarettes, and she worked. Um, whereas her sister, May, was in many ways the aman to my grandfather, nourishing him spiritually and intellectually, culturally. She made sure that they they went to the the local library. I like to think of these two women. I don't, I don't think Ruth is necessarily a parallel to my colorful great-grandmother, but I do see parallels between May's nourishing of my grandfather and Naomi's nourishing of her grandson, Obed. So <clears throat> let me quote John Dunn just again as we finish. Remember Naomi's despair earlier, Ruth's backbreaking labor in the hot summer fields of Israel, both of them might have said, we've been benighted, wintered, frozen, clouded, eclipsed, damped, and benumbed, smothered, and stupefied. But God answered their prayers. He came to them as the sun at noon. And the scriptures say it this way, Ruth um, chapter 4, verses four, uh, 14 through 15. The women, the Bethlehem women, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For the daughter, thy daughter-in-law, which loved thee, is better to thee than seven sons. Uh, she hath borne him. So, um, Hasid has been exercised by Ruth, by Naomi, by Obed. 
um, by Boaz and, and through their hesed, the hesed of God has been shown in these chapters. Now, the book of Ruth concludes with a little bit of a genealogy to help us to see, in addition to symbolizing God's covenantal loyalty represented through Ruth, that Ruth is now the ancestress of King David. So we're going to transition now into 1 Samuel, whose main character is really, fo it's really David. Samuel's a major character too, but it's all about how David comes to kingship and how he becomes the legitimate ruler of Israel and God's authoritative representative on earth. So this is how the tie-in for these two books comes together. In the book of 1 Samuel, we have the story, it begins with the story of Hannah and her son Samuel. So let's start by looking at the first chapter because here we have another woman who's been benighted, frozen, eclipsed. Um, in this case, Hannah is one of two wives to um, a man named Elkanah, did I say that correctly? And she has un been unable to bear children. Her sister wife has been fertile and has kind of, it appears, rubbed it in her nose. Now, there are um, more than one version of the Old, Old Testament, and some of them do not have Penina um, making Hannah, provoking, as the scriptures say, provoking Hannah to tears. If she has been that way, it's not very lovingly kind. It's not very full of hesed. So we learn that Hannah takes opportunity when her family makes its annual pilgrimage to the temple to pray to God. And we'll come back to those words in just a moment. Um, we'll look at them more deeply. But she, at that moment, bears her soul to God, um, weeping. And I feel kinship to Hannah. Um, my experience has also been with infertility, and there came a moment when I learned that I just would never be able to bear a biological child. We had tried various routes, and we came to a complete dead end. At that time, we were house-sitting a beautiful home in the gorgeous foothills of Los Altos Hills, California, and I remember that afternoon just walking on the streets. It was April. Everything was green and verdant, and I felt dead inside. Um, I was crying. I was talking out loud to God. Luckily, no passers-by thought I was drunken. But I've always loved Hannah's um, story because of that kinship that I have felt with her. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Um, we will hear that Eli judges her. We'll come back to the words that she is saying, but he judges her without knowing what is happening. Sometimes I do this myself. With a hearing loss, I try to judge based on what I'm seeing sometimes instead of what I can hear. But it is through listening that we really understand people. And Eli hasn't yet listened to her, so he's made a judgment. Sometimes it kind of chafed on me, but then I read from an Old Testament scholar this. is some female rabbi and scholar, Vanessa Ox. 
Anna's direct and intimate speech to God was such an unusual form of religious devotion for its time that Eli, the priest observing her, had no idea what she was doing. The way you went to repent at the temple or you went to ask God something at the temple was much more formal and ritualistic than our situation where I may go and wish to pray quietly in the celestial room. Instead, you went to the priest. So Hannah was not behaving according to the cultural norms of her day, and thus he mistook her for being drunk. If Eli's response to Hannah isn't the most gracious, Hannah's response to Eli is. So let's look at those words. Verse 12, and I'm still going to come back to verse 11 because it's so important. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunken. Eli said, how long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine. So she instead says, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. So let's take a moment and go back to that verse 11 and see what is she saying to the Lord? What, once Eli knows these thoughts of her heart, will he instead bless her instead of berating her? Look back up for Samuel, chapter 1, verse 11. Hannah vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thy handmaid a man-child, then will I give unto him, give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall be no razor come upon his head. Can you tell me what the no razor, is it similar to Samson being commanded not to cut his hair? In ancient Israelite times, people could make a vow. It's like when we fast. We put ourselves into a state of doing something different than normal. We withhold something from ourselves, like in the ancient world, for Samson and for Samuel, it wasn't cutting your hair. And in return, you plead and hope for God to give you a particular blessing you're looking for. So the Nazarite vow included things like don't cut your hair. Usually there was a time frame for that vow. It's interesting here, Hannah is making a lifelong Nazarite vow for her son. That was really unusual. None of us are ever going to fast for the rest of our lives. We say we'll fast for a very set and specific time period. So it's her trying to show how committed she is to God. She wants this blessing to the point of saying, Lord, it is okay that I am not the one raising him. He's yours anyway. So any son, if you give me the son, I will give him fully right back to you. It's a very, very beautiful, very tender. And huge way of consecrating. Um, I think it would be very hard to me, for me to pray for a child only to say, after I wean him, I will give him away. And that kind of breaks my heart just a little bit, but we can see Hannah's devotion to the Lord and her consecration to the Lord and, and how her desire for a child, for a son, was not a feather in her cap. It was not even the companionship that a child brings. Maybe not so much companionship when they're young, but as they grow older, 
Um, instead, it is her desire to be able to devote this child to service to God. So we learn then that her prayer is answered. And if we look at verses <clears throat> 25, we find that once Samuel is weaned, she and Elkanah slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as thy soul liveth, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. Well, in the next chapter, chapter 2, we hear this beautiful song of praise from Hannah. And it's interesting, it doesn't occur when she finds out that she's pregnant. It doesn't occur when the child is born. It occurs at the moment that she comes to give him unto the Lord. Again, kind of um, tugs at my heartstrings. Would I be praising the Lord at this moment, or would I be really kind of struggling? I admire Hannah so much for her dedication and her consecration, um, something that I, I can't even fathom in some ways. When I read this song of Hannah in chapter 2, it makes me think of Mary's song of praise in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. It's called the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. And this is what Hannah's doing. Her soul magnifies the Lord. She has been blessed of God. We've talked so often about how the name is the lesson. And let's see here that Hannah, her name means grace. And this story is about God's grace, how God gives us grace and how we can return grace. And I look at this prayer of hers, and it's such an expression of the grace of God, of his power and might and goodness, that he is full of grace and truth. So when we hear the Hannah story, we can think about how God gives us grace. He hears us in our distress. And specifically for the Old Testament story, it's God's grace to raise up a prophet named Samuel who will help the Israelites to receive a king to represent God. In fact, Samuel's name, which we're going to get to in a minute, is similar to the word Ishmael. It really means heard of God. And if you note here, Hannah went to the temple to pray, seeking God's grace, asking for a son, and God heard. And so she now gracefully lends or returns the son Samuel to God, and the name of this man is heard of God. He gives, is given this name because it symbolizes that God was graceful to Hannah and heard her prayer. Such a great message that the entire book of Samuel is about how God hears and answers our prayers. Really, really. So oh. before we get to chapter 3, where we learn of Samuel hearing God's voice, just as God has heard his mother's voice, let's look at Hannah's song of praise. My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. 
Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Then there's several reversals. The bows of mighty men are broken. They that stumble are girded with strength. These ways that God can turn our winters into summers, right? The last verse, verse 10 in her song of praise, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces out of heaven. And this is interesting because we spoke of Naomi feeling broken by the Lord, but here Hannah says the adversaries shall be broken. Um, out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the first time that anointed, which is translated in Greek into Christ and in Hebrew into Messiah, this is the first time that that word appears in the scriptures to talk about someone who comes with God's redemptive power. It is used to talk about Levite priests, but Hannah is the first person and the the first woman to speak of God's anointed as a deliverer who's offering salvation. This ties into the very end of the Samuel, the first, the two books of Samuel, because there we have the anointing of David, like Taylor said, that this story has set up that anointing of King David later on. So as we transition to the last chapter for today's lesson, there's some really powerful lessons, and it is all centered on hearing God. So in overview overview summary, you have the young boy Samuel who's now serving in the tabernacle at Shiloh with Eli. And Eli, it says, is dim of eyes. He's going blind, and yet he can still hear. So Samuel goes to, goes to bed, and he hears a voice. And three times he goes to Eli, um, did you call me? So it's interesting that Eli, who is dim of eyes, going blind, yet seems to know how to hear God's voice. Chapter 2 had set up that Eli had not been very good at teaching and helping his family, particularly his sons, to live the gospel. But yet, Eli seems to still be able to play an important role in helping another person hear and recognize the voice of God. I think back in my own life, before I went on a mission, uh, I'd been a member, I was so excited to be a missionary, but I wanted to absolutely know it was right for me to go on a mission, that the Book of Mormon was true, that the church was true. I remember hanging out with some friends at the Hillman Hall's dorms at BYU. There were two, two young men who had just returned home from missions, and I remember talking to them about my concern, like, I want to go teach the gospel, but I don't know if I know. We had this long conversation about God, about the gospel, about truth, and I just felt this just enveloping sensation of warmth, of love, and of goodness. And one of these return missionary friends of mine said to me, Taylor, what are you feeling right now? And I described it. I said, I feel totally at peace. I feel warm. I feel love. I feel goodness. I feel enthusiasm to do good and to be part of God's work. And my friend said, that is the Spirit. And I'm like, but that's the Spirit? I feel that all the time. <laughs> and here I was, 19, and I had been taught very well by parents and great leaders. I just somehow may have been paying too much attention to the, to the refreshments after the activities to not really get the message of what the Spirit felt like. So 
So these two return missionaries helped me know how to feel and recognize the Spirit of God in my life. They acted like Eli, helping me to hear the Lord. And what was beautiful for me is I realized I had had so many experiences of feeling the Spirit in the past. I just hadn't had language or an ability to see and recognize what I was experiencing. That's what we have with Samuel. You know, when we think about hearing the Lord, Taylor's speaking about how he learned individually to hear the Lord because of my lack of hearing. Um, you know, I use cochlear implants. I've had to develop certain skills that help me hear people better. I need to make sure I am concentrating. I need to try to see the face of the person that I'm listening to. I need to physically move myself closer to them. I need to ask other people to just quiet it down surrounding me. And, and, and as I've reflected on those, those techniques, I've realized many of those things are the same type of things we need to do to hear the Lord. We need to find quiet moments and remove other distractions. We need to set aside, or in my case, sometimes physically moving closer. We may not be able to physically move closer to God, but we can concentrate and focus in the way I try to do when I'm trying to listen, listen to other people. So sometimes, you know, what's been a, a, a definite, a huge challenge in my life, in our marriage, no, he's the most supportive, but it can't be easy to have a wife who never hears the kids in the middle of the night, um, and so who can never do nighttime duty. But um, makes makes me jealous. I wish I could sleep through it. <laughs> <laughs> Cochlears are out. I'm sleeping like a baby, but the baby's not sleeping, um, and so he's up and about working on that. In any case, we too can find individual ways to make sure that we are trying to hear the Lord just as we desire Him to hear us. So I love how the story plays out. Eli finally perceives that God is speaking to Samuel. Again, his name means God hears or heard of God. So Samuel has to learn how to hear God. God hears, now he wants his servants to be like him to hear as well. So verse 9, Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Again, notice the wordplay on Samuel's name. All of us should aspire to be like Samuel, to hear God. And not just to literally hear what he's saying, but to then act. And it goes on, So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. All of us who are here today have a desire to hear the voice of the Lord, to act on it. God wants to be heard. He also hears you. It's this mutuality, it's this hesed, this loving kindness. Any relationship, there is communication back and forth. There is hearing on both sides. God hears you. He knows you. And he loves you. And we can do the same. We can show that we have heard God and we can show that we love him by acting on the things that we have heard from him. So as we come to the close of this episode, thank you, Lisa, for, for joining us today and for helping us uh, bring so much beauty and depth to these stories of Ruth and Naomi and Hannah. I want to point out 
a, a beautiful thought that was shared in October 2021 General Conference by President Bonnie H. Corden, the young woman's general president. When she opened her talk, she said, I recently received a letter from an inquisitive young woman. She wrote, quote, I am stuck. I am not sure who I am, but I feel I'm here for something grand. And then President Corden goes on to talk about her call to be the, the young woman's general president from uh, as President Nelson extended that call, and he had asked her, what, what do you think uh, the, the youth need to know? And she says, I pondered for a moment and said, they need to know who they are. Yes, he exclaimed, and they need to know their purpose. Whether we look at Ruth or Naomi or Hannah or Eli or Lisa or Taylor or, or you, we all need to know who we are, and we are children of God, and sometimes life doesn't work out the way we would have designed it for ourselves. But isn't it an amazing thing that, that they've already talked about here, Samuel's response to the Lord of, here am I, that, that acknowledgement of, I'm here, because Jesus taught us how to use that phrase, here am I, send me, that whole approach. And so as we close today's lesson, our hope is that as you move into this week, into this next month, into the rest of this year, and into the rest of, of our, our life moving forward on the covenant path, that we can re-echo Samuel's words, speak, for thy servant heareth. That's a, that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful closure, I think, to, to Ruth and Naomi and Hannah's and Samuel's story, as well as our own story. Speak for thy servant heareth, and that is where we're going to discover our true identity and, and our true purpose in life. And as Lisa said, it may not come the way that traditionally we would hope that it would have come, but the Lord can make up in, in compensatory ways, and it's beautiful to see his goodness and his mercy and his grace. Thank you for your time with us. We love you. We know you love the Lord, and it just brings us so much joy to feel the Spirit together with you as we study the gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Know that you're loved.